At the beginning of the year, I started to see a new trend on social media. People kept sharing these, these posts. They seemed very cryptic, but they were a series of blocks, green and yellow blocks, and there were these like numbers associated with them. And I was like, I, I didn't have any idea what on earth this meant. But, I, but clearly, plenty of people understood it because it was like people were talking about it, sharing it back and forth. And after seeing it continue to circulate on Facebook, I was like, I got to Google this. So I don't even remember what I Googled. I Googled like green and yellow blocks, and, and all of a sudden they, it, it brought me to the world of, of Wordle. Wordle, it's a phenomenon you may have heard of. Uh, if you don't know, Wordle is this daily uh, word guessing game. It took me five tries today. Uh, and it reminds me of the board game I grew up playing called Mastermind, where there's this code, and you have a certain number of guesses. I, in this case, it's six guesses to get the five-letter word. And after each guess, there's a series of clues. If a letter that you guess is grayed out, that means that letter doesn't appear anywhere in the word. If it's yellow, that means you've got the right letter, but it's in the wrong location, the wrong spot. And then there's that coveted green block, which means you got the right letter in the right place. Now, I think Wordle, one of the things that has been successful about it is it's a social game because everyone has the same word every day. And so as a result, you're working against the puzzle, but you're also kind of working against one another as well. They had the share function where you can reveal to the public through social media how many or how few of your guesses you use to get the word. Or if there's an X, that means you, you busted, you, you didn't get it. NPR published an article back in January that was titled, Your Wordle Strategy Says a Lot About How You See the World. But I think it would have been better titled, Your Wordle Strategy Says a Lot About Yourself. Because the article was about how, par how participants would share their successes and failures. Well, one of the elements that struck me, which I didn't know until reading the article, is that Wordle has a hard mode. Now, in the hard mode, it means that if you guess one of the letters correctly, with a green or yellow block, you are forced to continue to use that word in each successive guesses. Now, that makes it difficult because if you, you can guess a word, like you can eliminate letters more quickly by not using the same letter over and over again. Now, if you win on hard mode, there's a little asterisk that appears next to your guesses on social media. And so the article was talking about how people enjoyed sharing, kind of, kind of comparing people that enjoyed sharing that they beat it on hard mode with others. And those who kind of played hard mode on the honor system, right, following those same rules, but would do it anonymously, right, wouldn't get that asterisk at the end. They wouldn't get the public recognition for it. Now, Wordle, the craze I would say has died down a bit. I don't see it appearing quite as often. But what I think it revealed in us is that we desire to share experiences with others. But we often do so in a way that tries to solicit recognition for our achievements. When we're proud of our accomplishment, we want others to see it. Folks that I don't see posting every day, as soon as they get that wordle and two guesses, that's when they're sharing it. We want to feel seen. We want to feel affirmed. We want others to know how smart we are, that we're able to conquer the puzzle of the day. We want that recognition. So keep that in your mind. Now, as I said a couple times in the service, we have been going through a sermon series through the seven deadly sins. Now, these vices are not deadly 
because they're egregious displays of immorality. That's not what the seven deadly sins are about, but because they're subversive. It's easy for us to live our lives and not see and recognize that we struggle with them. And I would argue that all of us struggle with each and every one of the seven. I was thinking about it this week that it's kind of like carbon monoxide poisoning. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas. You might have a furnace that is malfunctioning that is spewing carbon monoxide in your house. But if you don't have a smoke detector that can detect carbon monoxide or some other plug-in, you might never know to disastrous results. Right? If you don't start paying attention to the symptoms, the fatigue, the tiredness, the headaches, you might only realize what's happening too late. And I think that's the same way with these seven deadly sins, that if we don't engage the signs of these vices in our lives, they're going to slowly poison our hearts and souls. So this morning, we're looking at the final vice in the list, which is vainglory. Vainglory is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. We have a human need to be seen and affirmed. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be seen and affirmed. We desire to be thought well of by others and to think well of ourselves also. But like most of the sins that we've looked at, vainglory takes this positive desire or good human trait and disorders it. Vainglory is not just about desiring approval, but it becomes a fixation or an unhealthy attachment on our need to be liked or recognized. This vice manifests itself in our lives when we frame the entirety of our identity around how we perceive the outside world views us. And so this can be a real difficult trap to sense, like carbon monoxide, especially when there's a virtue or a goodness that we practice that goes unnoticed. Vainglory wants to broadcast that positive trait for all to see. Not for the trait in itself, but for the recognition that we want to get out of it. Now, if you're familiar with the list of the seven deadly sins, oftentimes what uh, modern lists will put as that final seventh sin is actually the sin of pride. And vainglory and pride have a lot of similarities, but they're not the same thing. Now, in the writing of the church fathers, pride was included, but it was not included as one of the seven vices. But it was a sign, or excuse me, it was the sin that was the root of them all. So if you think about a tree, think of pride as the trunk of that tree, and then these other seven sins as the branches that come out of them, extending from the trunk. This is the same point that C.S. Lewis makes in his book, Mere Christianity, that pride is the source of sin, our sinful behavior, our rejection of God in our lives. So pride, I just want to contrast these a little bit for you so that we don't get confused, because there is some overlap. Pride is a vice where we are are excessively concerned with excellence itself. You know, maybe it's our self-assurance to the point that we don't feel like we need anything from anyone else or need anything from God. 
It could be an arrogance or a condescension as we look down on others. Vainglory, by contrast, is focused on the display of my excellence. Let me give you a couple of examples, fictional examples. So the movie Beauty and the Beast, Gaston is a good example of pride. Gaston thinks that he is the best and, and everyone else already knows it. He famously says that Belle is the most beautiful girl in town that makes her the best. And he asks LeFou, don't I deserve the best? He's expecting a, a, an affirmative answer in that. He feels like he is owed Belle because she's the only one who is equal with him in beauty and charm. And we can easily observe and identify pride here because Gaston is arrogant. He is full of himself. It is clear that he is the villain of the movie. Now, I think a great example of vainglory is Professor Gilderoy Lockhart from the world of Harry Potter. Right, Gilderoy is this attractive wizard. He's kind of smarmy. Uh, I don't necessarily know what that word means, but I think that it applies to him. He's written a number of books recounting his adventures with all these sorts of fantastic creatures. Right? He's adored by the ladies. He's always, you know, focused on his reputation uh, more than he is magic or more than he is being a professor. You know, he, Harry is detention one night and detention is just Harry signing like his fan mail. The truth is though, for Gilderoy, is that it's all a sham. All of his stories are fake. At least they're fake from him. He plagiarized all of them. He took the adventures of other wizards, wrote them down, and then confounded in this fictional book their memories so that they wouldn't rem remember them. So he could write and he could garnish his fame, and no one was the wiser. And near the end of the movie, Harry Potter and his friend Ron figure out that Lockhart is not who he says he is, and Lockhart attempts to do the same thing with these two children, right? Because what was most important to him was preserving his status, preserving his reputation. Pride wants superiority. Vainglory wants what brings the most attention and applause to us. Right? Vainglory is more concerned with our reputation, what others think about us, than who we really are. I I'm, I'm going to try to give you plenty of examples because I know for me this was one of the vices. Like, we all have some sense of what greed is or what gluttony or wrath is, but vainglory is one of those that I think can be hard to identify. And, and so I want us to look at how this might manifest itself in our lives. Now, I, uh, I saw this meme a few weeks ago, and I chuckled at it. I, I meant to bring it up last week because it fits with envy, but I forgot. Uh, but I think it fits just as well here. Now, if you're listening online afterwards, th this is a picture of uh, Richard Simmons kind of looping his arm in William Shatner, kind of staring very intently at him. And overlaid on Simmons is this line, my kids. Right? And over Shatner, it says, talentless YouTube stars. And I, I laughed when I saw this because I was like, man, this is so true because my kids enjoy watching these videos of people playing Roblox or, you know, these other like really low budget, like low quality video cuts, like stuff that does not engage my interest at all, but they love them. And I know that there are a lot of kids, so many kids of our youth want to make YouTube videos, right? They want to get their stuff out there because they feel like if this is out there, I might get discovered. That they'll have this hidden talent that's revealed. That they'll be the next celebrity. And I think that's the allure of these videos, right? Because my, my kids think if, if they can do it, man, 
I can do it as well. I can get a million hits. Why not me? The desire is to be recognized behind this. Now, I, I look at the meme, and I, I chuckle, and you know, I, I point to it, and it's not up there anymore. I point to it, and it's like, of course, this is so silly. These kids are silly that they're fixated on these talentless stars. But you know what? Then I think about it, and I'm like, man, I got the same track playing through my head. It just manifests itself differently. Instead, I go to Facebook or I go to Twitter and I write what I think. I've done this on Twitter too many times. It's kind of embarrassing to say. But I have this like really meaningful or profound idea that comes up. And I'm like, I'm going to put this out there on Twitter. And so I, I, you know, I tweet this thing out. When it's out there for a while, I go back and check like, you know, how many likes does it have? How many, how many people have shared it? And I'm like, what do you mean no one? Like, this is a stroke of brilliance. Why is this not getting the traction that it deserves? Right? So maybe I laugh at my kids, but I should be laughing at myself as well because I do the same thing. Perfect example of vainglory. Fixated on the perception that others have of me. That others will think, wow, this guy's smart. This guy's profound. And social media, uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot. It's, it's really bad in this manner. And I don't mean to be apocalyptic. Like social media has come up as, as uh, you know, one of the, the uh, aggressors, if you will, for us uh, over and over again, an area of temptation for us as it pertains to these vices. I haven't given it up, but it's clear that there are elements of social media that if we are not careful can be really damaging to us spiritually. Whether it be the frequency of our posting, the articles that we choose to retweet, or things that are, you know, we're trying to, to cheat or beat that algorithm to kind of get it out there, to get that social traction. You know, one of the things that came up that I notice a lot in times of social media is, you know, depending on your, your side of the political aisle that you reside on, one of the things that's really in vogue right now is, is being woke. Right? Wokeness is about being aware of social problems, especially as it pertains to racism and inequality. But even wokeness can be a source of vainglory, Because right? there are a lot of people that I've experienced that post all of these things and consider themselves quote-unquote woke, but there's no intent behind true virtue behind it. Right? I haven't seen them try to do anything to meaningfully bridge the gap of racial inequality. Sometimes it seems more that the effort of this posting is to be liked or accepted by others. That's vainglory. What we call virtue signaling highlighting something that is popular, not because you're actually passionate about it, but it's an effort to attain that like, sense of belonging with the broader culture. Vainglory can manifest itself in all facets of life. It could be our pursuit of possessions. Right? We want to wear the right fashion. We, we want to have an electric car. We want to be the first kid on the block with a PlayStation 5 because then we feel that if we have it, we will be accepted by our peers, we'll have it made. Maybe it's the school you chose for yourself or your family members. I know when I started at college at Penn State, I had plenty of people ask me which campus, because Penn State has 19 different branch campuses. And I'd say, you know, I started, I did all four of my years at main, main campus, University Park, and there's this look of respect, like, oh, you must really be smart if you went to main campus for all four years. That's vainglory. Maybe we, maybe we take pride in how we care for our home. We want to have the greenest and most immaculate-looking lawn. We want everyone to know that we've got the cleanest kitchen on the block. We want to show the world that we've saved all this money through couponing. 
These are examples where we are primarily concerned with our reputation. It's what others think of us. So we acquire stuff. We're motivated to work to garner their approval. You know, as I was reading about these vices, one author, one author said that the emptiest form of glory-seeking was faking, like Gilderoy Lockhart, right? Because there's no substance behind it. But man, this is something that we do all the time. How often have you told a story, recounted something that happened, and you know, you just embellished it a little bit? You know, just added some additional details, you know, heighten the drama, give it a little more pizzazz. Right? When we're not honest with our retelling the story and we build it up even just a little bit, what's the goal? The goal is to increase my standing in the eyes of whoever I'm telling the story to. I want them to think that I'm exciting or that I do exciting things, trying to increase that, that status in their eyes. We care what others think. Right? Peer pressure is a huge or vainglory is a huge motivator to succumbing to peer pressure. Uh, Augustine, 4th, 5th century church father, wrote a book called Confessions. And in it, one of the stories that he shares about how some friends and he broke into a vineyard at night to share, uh, not, not you, Augustine, not you, Austin, uh, to, share, to, to steal some pears. They broke in to, to steal pears. And he's like, we didn't want, we didn't need the pears. I didn't even really want to do it. But he's like, I did it because these other boys were doing it, and I wanted to fit in. A few weeks ago, my family and I, we watched a, the new version of the West, West Side Story. You know, and Sarah and I knew what we were getting into, but our kids were like shocked at the end, right? Because we don't have a lot of tragedies in film. It just is, it, it, it's not a good ending for anyone. Right? It's not a happy ending because these kids are involved in, these, in gangs, right? They want that sense of acceptance, and so they go and do things that under normal circumstances, they probably wouldn't do it in and of themselves. But together, they just leave destruction in their wake, death behind. But I think this sense of vainglory, the sense of peer pressure has also infiltrated the church. One of the great temptations in the church is to practice our piety, practice our moralism for the display as a show for others. Right? In a false effort we attain, we, we desire to look like better Christians than we actually are. In, um, in some circles, this involves what you wear to church. Right? Putting on your Sunday clothes meant that you break out the nicest threads that you have in order to be more pleasing to God. But Jesus is less concerned with what we look like externally. He's more fo focused on what's going on in our hearts. Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Jesus famously chastised the Pharisees. I go to this passage a lot because I think it's brilliant. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are filled of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I think that can be said. We, we, we've seen this in so many times in the church where that veil, right, that, that mausoleum that is Christianity has been broken into and found death and destruction inside, found assault, found misogyny, 
found whatever it might be. We should be careful of focusing too much on the externals that we're, we think that we're doing the right thing, merely based upon some external metric. Years ago, for, there's just an example of this. Years ago, I had a conversation with someone about swearing because they, they had a, a dent, accidentally let a swear word go in church while we were in. It wasn't during Sunday morning service, but they were like in the building here. And they apologized profusely. I'm not, a, I'm not easily offended, and frankly, I, I didn't care that much. But in this person's mind, or excuse me, th- this person that I knew had a tendency to use colorful language at other places. So I asked this person, why was it wrong for you to swear in church? And the, the response was, well, this is God's house. It's disrespectful. But I further challenged them. I said, is God not also present at your home, at your office, at the grocery store? Why is it wrong to swear here, but not wrong to swear in those locations? When what we do in private does not match our outward actions, vainglory may be one of the culprits. We may be pretending to be someone that we aren't in order to maintain a level of respect from our Christian peers. Here's another example that gets me, because I know I'm guilty of this. When you are praying out loud in a group of people, how focused are you on the prayers of the other people? Right, Dorothy and I get together uh, pretty regularly, mo- Monday through Wednesday at 11.30 at the CVS to pray. Uh, we're not each there every day, but we try to be there about as every weekday. There's some times that I show up and I'm like, man, I don't, I don't even know what to pray for. And Dorothy usually goes first and I usually wrap us up. And sometimes when she's praying, I'm thinking, what am I going to pray for, Lord? I'm not, I'm not actually thinking about what she's praying. I'm not in the spirit with her. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say next. Or are you rehearsing your prayers in your mind so that when you're up, you don't sound foolish? It's vainglory. Jesus told the story of two men who went to the temple to pray. This is Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, Jesus told them this parable. Notice who he told it to. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Pharisees get a bad rap in scripture, but they were very moral individuals. The other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. Here's all the great stuff I do. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. By every external metric, that guy was doing the right thing. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's not about the show. It's not about our reputation. It's about being consistent with the person who God is shaping us to be. When I was in college, a pastor of the Baptist church I went to, man, he was a gifted communicator. He was one of the best preachers that I've ever heard. When he preached, the Bible really came alive. And after service one day, uh, my friend Val approached him. And she's like, Pastor Dan, you are a really great preacher. 
without missing a beat, he responded, I'll never forget this. He responded, thank you. The devil tells me that too. I was floored. Yes, he was a talented orator. But with the pursuit of excellence comes a temptation. Pastor Dan refused to take the credit, the glory, if you will, for the work that God was doing through him. He was acknowledging that, you know what, if his reputation or his identity is based upon how well other people think that he preaches, it's a slippery slope to go down. He was resisting this sense of vainglory. Now, if vainglory is the cheap imitation of our need, right? Because this is what we've talked about. If the vices are disordering something, that means that there's something good and ordered that it had to start with. The human good, it is a good desire to be known, to be affirmed. So if vainglory is the disordered pursuit of being known and affirmed, what's the remedy for us? What's the antidote in order to help us deal with this prevalent vice in our lives? And I'd suggest that there are two things that I want to encourage us to focus on this week as we think about this. Something that we do and something that we believe. And the thing that we believe, it's similar to last week, that we're loved by God. This needs to be the foundation. When we succumb to vainglory, it's a cheap imitation to be known by others. And so we just show the best parts of ourselves to keep our reputation intact or to embellish our deeds so that others will think better of us. But this imitation is fake. Deep down, we ask ourselves, we know the truth. Like, do these people that I'm sharing with actually know the real me? We might have friends, but we struggle with the anxiety that if they really knew what I was like, they'd leave me. So we keep this facade going. But our foundation is that God knows us. God created us and he loves us deeply. And he meets us where we are. We don't face rejection with God. I want to read for you you, from Psalm 139, 1 to 6 and then 13 to 16. Listen to these words of God, these intimate words of God and the profound knowledge of us, of our person, of our character. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Then picking up at 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderful, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were before me, when as yet none of them had come to pass. God knew us before we even 
existed in this bodily form. God loves us. I, was, I said last week, he loves us as we are, and he loves us too much to let us stay this way, but he meets us where we are, brokenness and all. This is the foundation, I would say, of broken out of almost all of the vices, that we are known and that we are loved by God. Paul tells us in Romans that when we are found in Jesus Christ, that there is no condemnation for us. We'll never be rejected by God when we're found in Jesus. And that gives us this foundation of love, of self-worth, that allows us to be honest with ourselves, but also honest with others about our true character and nature. We can be transparent, not keeping up this facade. But specific to vainglory, I think there are some disciplines that we can practice, some things that we can do to help this process of transformation in us. Every week I've given you a virtue that opposes the vice. This virtue is a mouthful. That's why I wrote it down. Magnanimity. Magnanimity. When I I read that, I was like, I don't even know what that means. I had to Google it. Leave it to these Latin church fathers to come up with these really big words. But magnanimity is when you showcase, not, not like for display sake, but when you show, when you, when you give people acts of virtue to others. And they can be great or they can be small. And especially if you do them to someone who's a rival, right? Loving those who hate you, as Jesus said. Or someone who is, is in a lower kind of station than us. I, I, I prefer to think about it this way. Mother Teresa quote, do little things with great love. That's magnanimity. Right? M- Mother Teresa is a saint, both in the Catholic Church and even our Protestant understanding of what it means to be a saint. She had rec- received acclaim for her generosity, but still she continued her work with unlikely people in overlooked places. She modeled what it meant to fulfill her calling. Right? Not because of the praise that she received from humanity, but it's because of what God made her for. You don't have to move to India to work with the poor, the sick, the despondent to do this. You could showcase anonymous generosity with your neighbor, shoveling their, their sidewalks when it snows. You could invite the social outsider to sit with your table at lunch. You could give innovative ideas at work from behind the scenes, recognizing that maybe you don't even get credit for it. It's when you let your lives and actions speak for themselves. Right? We do things for others, not because of what we get back in return, but for the joy that the Lord has set before us. Then we're on that same path to virtue. But sometimes we need to detox to be able to get to this point. Two of the traditional spiritual disciplines can help us on this path. The disciplines of silence and solitude. Because when we take intentional time and silence away from others, it can help detach us from our compulsion to the praise of others. It can help us channel our energies away from showiness and instead focus on more honoring means. Right? In silence, we can choose not to respond to others when they criticize us. We could follow the model of Jesus who did not defend himself while he was being unfairly attacked. Silence and solitude can help break that cycle of vainglory, 
Right? In silence, we detox from the voices around us. We withdraw from that drug of affirmation from others. In solitude, we can be still before God. We can recognize the anxious, affirmation-seeking being that we are. You know, just some examples of what this could look like. Maybe you choose to go a week without looking in a mirror. Why else do mirrors exist? But for us, I mean, I, I need a mirror to like floss my teeth, right? So I guess there are some purposes for mirror, but really most people use the mirror because they want to know what they look like so that when they go out, they can feel all right, confident in who they are. Being less concerned about our external appearance and what others think of us. I asked her permission beforehand, but several years ago, Sarah, during the season of Lent, chose to fast from to give up wearing makeup. She realized in herself that makeup had become an idol, that she only felt beautiful when she was wearing makeup. And so the, the purpose was to kind of detox from that need of what do others think of me? What are others' perception? And there's so many, because there's so many places where we march to the beat of the drums of others. Find a discipline, find a practice that'll help you detox from the drug of vainglory. All right, I went a little over, but I'm going to give you some reflection questions for this week to break this hold. So here we go. Are you more motivated by prideful vainglory, right? So this is a need to display your goodness, or fearful vainglory, the need to cover up your defects? Which, which one do you tend to err on the side of? Secondly, what element of your Christian journey are you most prone to faking or embellishing in order to find acceptance in the church? Right? Where are you that whitewashed tomb like the, the Pharisee that you're putting up this, this front looking maybe more pious than you actually are? And lastly, this one's hard. Try to go a week without defending yourself at all and start to think about it. What feelings begin to come up when you're silent in the face of accusations? So there's some place. I'll post them on Facebook this week. Why don't you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for your love for us. Lord, I love that intimate language that you knit us together in our mother's womb. Lord, you knew us before the foundation of the earth was formed. And you love us. May we rest in your love, knowing that we may be rejected by people, but we are not rejected by you. Allow us to be more integrated, more wholesome in that internal and external matching one another that we might display the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives to a watching world not for show but for your glory Lord lead us in paths of truth today and every day in Jesus name we pray amen